Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. This morning, we're going to jump right into uh, a message that I've titled, Admit, Accept, and Abide. And everything that we're doing uh, through this time is really focused on how, as Christians, you and I can uh, respond rightly, biblically, and well through um, through unprecedented times. We keep hearing that word used over and over that these are unprecedented times, and it's true. Uh, but uh, we can sit and lament and be confused about all of that as long as we want, or what we can do is we can move forward and uh, in our path, in our course of action that God has ordained for us uh, as his people. So um, this morning, again, the message is titled, Admit, Accept, and Abide. Uh, this week, my newsfeed was inundated with articles asking uh, very common questions for times such as these. Questions like, where is God? Uh, what is he doing in all of this? Why are these things happening? And then the questions kind of evolve into uh, deeper, more philosophical questions. Things like, uh, is this concerning judgment? Is there sin attached to any of this? And of course, uh, that also meant, as I was working through those articles, that meant that I had to wade through some very, let's just say, um, cringeworthy uh, theories about what God was doing or what is happening in our world. But uh, putting those answers, uh, the answers of Job's friends, if you catch my reference, where they belong, which is filed in the round folder, uh, I think we all understand why, as people, as human beings, we ask questions like this. Uh, And the answer is because we want and even need answers in life. We were not made to just sit in the dark. We were not made to be confused. We were were made to understand, uh, and that happens to be a part of the image we were created in. But we long for meaning, right? And this longing, just so we're clear, uh, is, uh, and contrary to some opinions, uh, came far before the rationalism uh, that we inherited just a few generations ago. All we would have to do to prove this is to go back to the ancient stories of Job, to Joseph, to King David, many others. You can even go outside of the biblical sources, and what you will see is that humanity has always sought reasons and explanation, and especially in unprecedented times. So it it should go without saying, and I hope you understand this, it should go out without saying that there is no issue whatsoever in people seeking answers. The Bible is filled with this. If you read the Psalms for any length of time, you will find the psalmist, whether it's David or others, constantly seeking answers and asking questions. This is, again, something I've shared with the church many times, that asking questions is a great thing. And so we need to continue to do this. So so it's not a problem to be uh, uh, seeking answers. But we do have a struggle as church, as the church, as Christians. Our struggle lies in an inability to live and carry on by faith when answers can't be found. Our issue is not in asking questions. Our issue is in an inability to live and carry on 
when answers can't be found. And this struggle often leads to one of two responses, and maybe there's more, but these fit for what I want to share with you today. The first would be asserting reasons that cannot be proven. We see this all the time in the church. You hear pastors, you hear uh, lay people, you hear uh, commentators in the society saying things like the end of the world is near, God is mad, or judgment is coming. These are reasons that we cannot prove. Okay, And so what we ought to do is leave them there. <laughs> we should leave them there. It's not that they aren't true or are true. It's that we cannot prove them. And what happens in that unprovable assertion uh, camp is that it often leads to a lot of conflict in the church. People fighting amongst, amongst each other as to what is really happening in times like this. Uh, number two, though, and this, I believe, is more tragic, it, it ends in people losing their faith altogether. They don't have answers as to why something is happening, and so what they do is they give up on God. Let me just say that these are both extremes, and neither is good, and I think you understand why. One of the more provocative headlines that uh, I read this week uh, had this as its title, quote, Christianity offers no answers about the coronavirus. It's not supposed to, end quote. Now, on the surface, this kind of headline uh, doesn't sit well with us, and for the reason that I've stated, because we need answers. And although the title was definitely designed to be clickbait, to drive people to the website, um, the article was written by someone that I respect, and that is what intrigued me. This article, written by N.T. Wright, was truly uh, invaluable. Uh, and ironically, N.T. Wright also does offer a clear Christian answer. So uh, it's just amazing. Probably the point gets you to the website. Wright's answer wasn't a shot in the dark about what God is up to or whose sin was to blame for these circumstances. As a matter of fact, he warned against that kind of guesswork, as I previously did. Instead, he offered an action. His answer was an action. Wright proposed that as Christians, we need to learn and even relearn in some cases the biblical discipline or the biblical practice of lament. Not only do I wholeheartedly agree with this, but this article sparked a whole lot of thought for me this week. And so what I want to do today is I want to deal with a fuller response in moments where you and I don't have answers. We need to realize that this is extremely practical in times like this. And it's not solely because of a virus that is spreading across the globe. This is because of the effects of the virus. People's jobs are being lost. People's businesses that they've spent a lifetime building are being closed. Uh, people are losing jobs and therefore worrying about how they're going to feed their family. And all of that isn't even to mention the health concerns that we have in all of this. So this is a very real situation right now. So I want to deal with a fuller response uh, to what we do as Christians in moments when we don't have answers. I'm going to share a biblical perspective on lamenting because we've already brought that up. But I also want to provide you a more robust set of actions as we move forward.
So throughout today's message, as we look to some of the stories of God's word, what we're going to see is we're going to see how studying God's word practically, how reading the stories of scripture practically have the power to teach, to rebuke, to correct, and to train us in righteousness. That's exactly what 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us. So let's turn our attention to this idea of lament. What does it mean to lament? This is important, church. What does it mean to lament? Although synonymous with words like complaining or bemoaning, I read an especially helpful definition of lament this week, and here's, here's what it says. This definition was written by a man named Glenn Packham, and Glenn Packham is a songwriter as well as a pastor, and he's a writer and contributor to Our Daily Bread, and some of you enjoy that uh, periodical. So, Here's what he said about lament, and he contrasts it, of course, to complaining. He says, a complaint is an accusation against God that maligns his or God's character. A complaint is an accusation against God that maligns his character. Meanwhile, a lament is an appeal to God based on confidence in his character. Now think about that for just a second. A lament, which we have kind of jammed together with complaining and bemoaning, is actually biblically understood, and I'm going to prove it to you here in just a second, biblically understood is an appeal to God, but it is always based on a confidence in the character and the nature of God. So what we need to understand is that biblical lament includes asking God why. It includes searching for meaning in life. We all do it. It's built into us. It is okay to do that. But biblical lament is always done with the confidence that God is in control, even if God doesn't give us answers. That's the trick, okay? God is in control. God is good, even if we don't know what in the world he's up to. In Psalm 13, verse 1, David asked God this question. He said, how long will you hide your face from me? And of course, on the surface, this sounds like complaining, doesn't it? (laughs) How long are you going to hide your face from me? But what we need to see is that David's appeal is based on a well-informed understanding of God's character. A well-informed understanding of God's goodness. David already has an abiding relationship with his God, doesn't he? On uh, one relationship that is intended to spend time in communion with him and has experienced that communion for years on end of his life. Now, This is important for us to understand because it was the contrast that provoked David's question. It was the contrast. What do I mean by that? I mean that David had this abiding relationship with God and all of a sudden God goes silent. That is what is provoking David's question. That is why David is wondering why. Many of you as Christians are are sitting in a place like this right now. God has been faithful to you. He has cared for your family. He's established your business. He's moved you forward. And then all of a sudden, nothing. We have coronavirus. Things are shut down. And you're wondering what the, the future holds. It is okay to lament in this time. It is okay to ask God questions and seek for answers, but remember to do it knowing that his character is good. And I would would say that if you are crying out to him after having a longstanding relationship, you're just like David. You're simply asking a question of God that is provoked 
because there's a contrast in your relationship with him right now. In our current situation, instead of theorizing about what this coronavirus or this corona pandemic is all about, my suggestion is that we follow a threefold approach. And here's what that threefold approach is. It's actually on the screen right behind me. The threefold approach is to accept what we do know. Accept. The second is to admit there are things we don't know. And third, or last, abide in God through it all. So it's pretty simple, right? Accept, admit, abide. What do we need to accept right now in this particular pandemic? We need to accept that it's real. We need to accept that people all over the world are getting sick and many people are dying. So therefore, we need to look uh, life right in the eye. We need to know that it is, it's not something to be afraid of. But we need to ad- accept that that is real. Here's something we need to admit. We need to admit we have no idea why this is happening. We can theorize, we can play games if we want to and and, and talk about, you know, whether or not there's government conspiracies and whether or not this came from China and all of these other things. Right now, all I want you to remember is we don't know. So let's rest in this. We don't know. So we accept that there is a virus. We admit we don't know a great deal of things. And right now what we need to do as Christians is we need to abide in God. We need to put our trust in him. The best example that I can give you, and I'm going to give you three of them this morning, but the best example that I could give you uh, in a, a short clip is Psalm 13, the very psalm I just quoted from which has a whopping six verses, mind you. So this should serve as a great uh, small Bible study for you and your family this week. So I encourage you, open your scriptures, read through these six verses, and give time to studying and understanding them. But let me share with you how this great psalm begins and how this psalm ends so that I can establish this principle. Verse 1, we see our question. David says, How long will you hide your face from me? Then in verse 5 and 6, we see a resolution. He says, But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Accept, admit, abide. Every bit of it is right there. David accepts his circumstances. He's unsure of what's happening in his life or why it is taking place. He admits that he's feeling distance from God, and then he resolves to abide. Now, that resolution to abide in God led David to three more actions. And this is where we start again to see this more robust picture of what we do when we don't have answers to life's challenging questions. Notice what David does while he's abiding. First, he says, I have trusted in you in my loving kindness. He trusts God. Number two, my heart rejoices in your salvation. He rejoices. Number three, I will sing to the Lord because uh, he has dealt bountifully with me. You see, what happens here, I believe, is a chain of events. I believe that when you truly trust God, your heart rejoices in who he is. And I believe that when your heart rejoices in who God is, the natural outflow is that you sing his praises. I think that that's just what happens. But what we're seeing here is biblical lament, and we're seeing him, David, accepting his circumstances, admitting his circumstances, and abiding in the God he says he believes in. So again, what's that definition of lament? It is an appeal to God that is based on confidence in his character. 
What did, you, what did David just say? I rejoice in your loving kindness. He's, re, he's rejoicing in the character of God. Is he still questioning why life is going the way it is? Of course. Does he still have unanswered questions? Absolutely. But he trusts in the character of God. This is biblical lament. This is what, it, this is what sets it apart from just David complaining. This is what will set you apart and me apart from complaining to God. So lament is a very important step in times like these. Now, before we move on to some of these uh, important next steps or practical steps, I'm going to jump on a soapbox here for just a second, and I pray that you will indulge me for a bit. Some of you uh, get really excited about these moments in, <laughs> in the sermons, but you know, you and I are twisted. So that's just all there is to it. But the fact that we need to recapture the biblical practice of lament is yet another signpost that our culture has infiltrated the church. Listen to me clearly, church. This impact has led to an even uh, to uh, our unwillingness to endure difficult matters. The church is no better than the world anymore. We live in a day where if everything isn't positive, if everything isn't encouraging, if everything isn't uplifting, well, we simply can't stomach life. We can't even make it through a day of news headlines without needing some positive vibe to reset us. And don't get me started about how we see this on social media. I've shared this before, and it's worth repeating, and I'll keep repeating it until it sinks into our hearts. We cannot insulate ourselves from all the difficult issues of life, and nor does the Bible promise an insulation from all the difficult issues of life. The Bible does not say that Christians will never face hard times or difficulties. As a matter of fact, it says the exact opposite. No matter how people like to misinterpret God's word, you must realize that Jesus told us, in this world, we will have trouble. We will have trouble. And guess what? It goes far beyond persecution. The trend of this generation is to eliminate negative people from their life, or to block those with whom they disagree, or to only listen to those in their echo chamber and Mark my words, church, the church has a lot of little mini echo chambers within its walls, oftentimes denominational lines. This trend is on the rise, and it's on the rise in the church. This is precisely what has led us as a culture to the need for safe spaces, a culture that has replaced the freedom of speech, which, by the way, is not a biblical precedent. It's a, an American one, but we have replaced the, the precedent of freedom of speech with the freedom not to be offended. You know that's impossible, right? The freedom not to be offended? I'm offended that you would assert such an idea. <laughs> you cannot guarantee people's freedom to not be offended. My point is that we have no room for lament. Why? Because we won't let ourselves get to the point of needing to lament. We have so padded our life with encouragement and softness and everything so good that we can't even grieve anymore, which is sadly to remove ourselves from running to God in our time of need. I shared on the live broadcast this week that when we continue to turn off the negative stuff and, and to shut down all of the reports of people who are sick and dying, what we do is we short circuit our prayer list. 
Because we could be praying for those situations, and we don't. So I just can't take it. So send me the fourth picture in your camera roll. This is nonsense, church. Uh, fine, we should have fun. We should enjoy life. We should celebrate and do those things. But it is clearly out of balance inside of our culture. This is, of course, until life puts us where we are against our will. Meaning we can pad ourselves and we can insulate ourselves until life happens. When will this happen or what will we do in that situation? Most likely, it, it will turn out that we will be shown as a people who have less hope than the rest of the world. Or at least just as much. But definitely no more. Church, this shouldn't be. This shouldn't be. We should be the people, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when the fiery furnace is lit up to seven times its normal temperature, we look at it and say, ain't changing our resolve. We're not moving. We're still pressing on. Truth is, difficult times, difficult circumstances, and even difficult people are going to come, whether you like it or not. Our choice is not whether or not to endure. Our choice is how we will endure. Will we do it faithfully or will we not? Biblical lament should be our course of action. And I just want to reset that definition again for you so that you understand it or restate it. Appeal to God based on confidence in his character. We need to be those people. We may not know why. We may not understand what's happening in our world. But we can still run to our God having confidence in his character, knowing that he is not intimidated by us asking him why or asking him what's going on. So what other courses of action might we take when life provides us with no answers? Well, look at what David already did. David trusted, David rejoiced, and David sang. Let's look to the story of Joseph uh, in Genesis chapter 37 through chapter 50. Now, here, here is how this story goes, just uh, for your uh, memory. Joseph is one of many children for Jacob, and he is favored by his father, according to Scripture. It says that his father loved him more than all the rest. Uh, and that, of course, begs lots of questions about how you should parent. It's simply a, a statement of reality of what did happen, not necessarily what should happen. But Jacob loved Joseph more than all the rest, and he gave him this multicolored tunic or multicolored coat, and uh, Jacob or Joseph had these dreams. And in these dreams, what God was, what we know, God was communicating to him, although he and his brothers and his father didn't know this at the time, was that at one point he was going to rule over them all. He was going to uh, save many people alive. We'll, we'll get to there, that in just a second. But Joseph had these dreams, and in the midst of these dreams, it seems that it provoked his brothers to jealousy. I believe that there was the issue of the father's favoritism, plus these dreams and what they implied that provoked his brothers to jealousy. And so Joseph gets taken, uh, while he's out in the field, he gets taken by his brothers, and he gets thrown into a cistern and sold into slavery. In that being sold into slavery, uh, Joseph travels to uh, a particular location where he becomes a servant in Potiphar's house. While in Potiphar's house, and mind you, uh, being faithful to God, the scripture is very clear that Joseph over and over was faithful to God. While being faithful to God, he gets falsely accused by Potiphar's wife that he was trying to take advantage of her. He gets thrown into jail because of this situation. 
While he's in jail, he encounters two of Pharaoh's servants that were thrown into jail as well, probably because they made Pharaoh mad one day. And, and so he meets them, and in jail, they have these dreams, and Joseph interprets their dreams. One, not so good for the baker, and one, very good for the cupbearer. He would be restored back to Pharaoh's right side, right, you know, back to serving him. Joseph says to this man, he says, when you go back before Pharaoh, please remember me. And guess what the scripture says? The guy forgot about Joseph. And so Joseph is languishing in prison. Now, I want you to think about that story for a second. Based on what Joseph knows, not what we know, we can look at the whole story in its totality. But Joseph doesn't know what's happening. He knows what today is bringing, right? And so Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers, He has been falsely accused and thrown into prison and forgotten by the person that he thought could redeem him. But here's what we see in Joseph's life, or here's maybe what we don't see. Joseph doesn't say in Scripture, geez, I wonder why my brothers don't love me. I'm sure he did have that question. I'm sure he wondered why. We just don't see it there. We also don't see Joseph lamenting, why didn't my dad come to get me? Joseph doesn't know what we know, and that is that his brothers went back home and said he's been eaten by a wild animal. So Jacob thinks he's dead. Joseph has a lot, in my view of this, he has a lot of whys, a lot of questions. And yet, what we see over and over throughout the story is that Joseph doesn't waver and he continues to be faithful to God. That's an amazing course of action to take when you have a lot of unknowns, when you have a lot of questions that are still up in the air. That actually is the model that we should be living by. We should be a people who continue to remain faithful, continue to push forward, continue to do what God has called us to. Here's what we're seeing in Joseph's life. Joseph actually accepted his circumstances. Joseph admitted that he was confused about things. Well, we're going to see that he admitted his confusion about these things in just a second. And then he chose through his behavior, through his actions in being faithful to abide in God throughout the entire story. So after uh, Joseph, or, uh, Joseph tells this dream or interprets this dream for the cupbearer, The cupbearer forgets him. But then Pharaoh has a dream, and that sparks the memory of the cupbearer. And so he says, says, I know a guy. I was in prison with him, right? So I know a guy. So they get this guy, they get Joseph, and he comes up, and he begins to share this story, okay? He begins to share an interpretation, sorry. He begins to share an interpretation with Pharaoh of this story. And Pharaoh does something unbelievable. Pharaoh puts him in the highest ranking position in the kingdom apart from Pharaoh's position and he puts Joseph in charge of mitigating this situation where he's going to have seven years of plenty preparing for a famine where they're going to have seven years of famine and and it's going to leave the land broken. So so Joseph works all this stuff together. Joseph uh, puts together this plan and the scripture tells us that during the time of plenty, that during the time where he's storing up all the goods, Joseph actually has two sons. 
It's a very powerful piece of the story. So what can we put together? Joseph gets married. Joseph has two sons. And those sons mean something to him. Genesis chapter 41, verses 51 through 52, give us a really amazing insight in the fact that Joseph is accepting what's happening and he's admitting that he doesn't understand what's happening. Look at what it says. It says, Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. What does that verse tell us that Joseph was dealing with in his unanswered questions, in his lack of meaning for his current circumstance? It says that he was troubled by it. It says that he was troubled by it. But at the birth of this son Manasseh, God had made it so that he would forget that trouble that he had. I am guessing that it was because of the great joy of having this son. What an amazing blessing children are. And so uh, he, he is able to forget all of his trouble, but it is plain to see he had trouble. That word trouble in the Hebrew is a mall, and it means grief or pain or misery. What does Joseph admit in this declaration? He admitted that he had grief, he had pain, he had misery. Anybody that is betrayed by their brothers, abandoned by their family, put into prison falsely, you're going to feel something about this. So he goes on, verse 52. He named the second Ephraim. Okay, look at this. For he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So he names his son for this declaration, for this truth that God had made him fruitful. In all of this, Joseph doesn't know the why to the question. What does Joseph do? Well, based on this reality of grief, pain, and misery, Joseph lamented. But what did Joseph do in his lament? He remembered the character of God. And in remembering the character of God, he credits God for everything that he's experiencing. He says, God has given me children to make me forget. God has given me children so that he can show me that he is faithful to me uh, and that I have been faithful to him in this land of affliction. That's That's an amazing story. But listen, all of this happens from Genesis 37 to Genesis 49. Joseph doesn't know what happens yet in Genesis 50. Joseph doesn't know yet, but when he does, he is cool and resolved because he had already trusted the God who was walking him through this journey. Remember that Joseph's journey took somewhere around 20 years. We're not dealing with two weeks of quarantine. We're dealing with a, an entire lifetime, it would appear, of being separated from his family, from his father, a father that he loved and who favored him. This is a really important thing. So in Genesis 50, verses 18 through 21, we actually do get an answer. You and I may never get an answer. We may get the answer 20 years later. But what do we do in the meantime? We try to look more like Joseph. We try to rest in the fact that even though we have questions, we go to God, and then we recognize that God is with us in all of that affliction. Here's what Joseph says. Then his brothers, or what scripture says, Joseph says, uh, then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for I am in God's, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. 
If you're Joseph, you may look at this story and say, you, you brought me to a place where I lost 20 years with my father so that I could preserve many people alive? I don't care. How about my life? How about my time with my father? Ah, see, Joseph doesn't ask that question or doesn't appear to ask that question. Joseph rejoices in the fact that what God was doing, and by the way, you need to highlight this in your Bible. It says, what you meant as evil against me, God meant for good. God was at work in this. Now, does that make us conclude that every person's life is predetermined at every step? Absolutely not. You're making a weird jump to assert something like this. But in Joseph's life, you better bet your bottom dollar that that's exactly what was happening. God meant this situation for their good or for the good of many, many people. That's what the scripture plainly tells us. So verse 21, so therefore do not be afraid. Do you notice that he reassures his brothers that they should not fear his retribution? My wife was talking to me about this last night as we were, as we were going back and forth through the scriptures and she said, I don't know about you, but I want to believe that when he had those two sons in those years of plenty, he had resolved in his heart to forgive his brothers then. Because when they show up, he says, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Because what did Joseph know? He knew that God was in control. He knew that God was already at work. So what do we see in Joseph? We have him admitting what is going on in his life. He's, he's grieving things. He's lost a lot. He accepts those realities. We never see a story where Joseph tries to make a jailbreak and go back home. But he trusts God. And then he abides in God's plan for his life. We can learn a lot from Joseph. The next story that we need to think through is the story of Job. And, and Job's story is powerful. Job's story is unbelievably powerful. Job, according to Scripture, is an upright man. Righteous in all of his ways. He's an upright man. Then there's this really curious piece of the story in which God offers up Job as consideration for the accuser, for the Satan, as we understand the text to say. So, so God offers him up. He says, have you considered my servant Job? He's pretty awesome. And I, I say this all the time. I'm not really even comfortable with God dropping my name. It's, this is not good. It's going to be before the enemy, okay? And so he says, have you considered my servant Job? So Satan challenges Job's character. He's not going to serve you, okay? Well, we'll find out. Please understand something here, church. God is the one who is permitting and allowing this whole ordeal to happen. That may be hard for us to, to, to swallow, but it is true nonetheless. So what happens in this great testing that God has allowed? Um, Job's property is gone. Uh, Job's children are killed. Job's health is attacked. Well, that's weird. I thought he was... I thought he was protected about these things. Job's health is attacked, and then add to all of it, insult to injury, Job's wife, Job's wife comes to him and says, curse God and die. Okay, none of you husbands out there have had your wife say that to you yet, so I don't even care what you're thinking, okay? So think about this again. The, the devil is challenging Job at the, at the allowance of God, 
His property is being destroyed or his, his property is being consumed. His children are being destroyed. His health is under attack. His wife is against him with these words, curse God and die. And what does Job do in response? Job, I believe, laments. I believe Job walks rightly when he has no answers. Look at what Job 2, 9 and 10 says. And this is an amazing pair of verses here. Verse 9 of chapter 2 says this, Then his wife, Job's wife, said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Thanks, honey. Just hoping for support here. Verse 10, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed, now don't think about quoting that husbands without the next part, okay? I don't don't want to get emails about you talking this way to your wife, okay? Listen to this. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks, as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? There are people in the church today that actually espouse that God, what all of Job communicates, was Job's faulty understanding of God. For example, the Lord gives and takes away. There are people who assert that God gives, but God doesn't take away because that would contradict his goodness. But you are wrong, and you are wrong for a very important reason. Look at what happens next. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And look at what the scripture declares about, God, or about Job's statement there. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job just spoke a very important truth. A very important truth that we struggle to speak. A very important truth that I believe Job struggles to keep believing as he moves on in his story. But he declares, if we're going to accept good from God, should we not accept adversity? This is why the New Testament tells us to pray, Father, lead us not into temptation. Why would we need to pray that if it's not a a reality or a possibility? It can happen. He does not tempt us, but he will allow tests to come our way. Should we not accept the good and not the adversity? This is back to what I shared a second ago when it comes to understanding lament and our need to insulate ourselves from all the negativity of life. We can't say what Job said. And sadly, if we can't say what Job said, who are we keeping company with? His wife. We can't say this. And so our response when all bad things happen is we're going to say, curse God and die. We're back to the beginning. We're going to lose faith. But if you look at it Job's way, Job says, I'm going to accept good from God and I'm going to accept adversity. I'm going to trust him. This is biblical lament. This is Job admitting. This is Job accepting. This is Job abiding. This is what we have to relearn, church. We're living in a time where we don't know what's happening. Are we going to curse God and die? Are we going to give up? Are we going to become practical atheists and that is live our life as though God is not really a part of who we are? Or are we going to see what we're called to do? And that is, well, listen, we've got to admit what we do know. We're in a pandemic. We've got to accept what we don't know. We have no idea the purpose in all of this. But what we have to do is abide in God all the time. You see, what Job understood that we say we understand but need to learn better is that passage from Romans that is so readily on our lips. 
God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What we actually want it to say is that God works good things for our good. What it says is God works all things for our good. Pretending as though we will not face adversity is foolishness, church. We are not different from the rest of the world if everything goes well and we react well. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to modify something to, to sound a little bit like Jesus here. Don't even sinners react well when things go well? Of course they do. We should react well when things aren't going well because we trust in the God of the universe. So after this, then we have Job's friends who... Well, never mind. Job's friends are not a very good lot of people. That's why I told you that many who are suggesting their made-up reasons for this pandemic need to be filed away with Job's friends in the round file, right? Following Job's tragic loss, and immediately after his friends have been silenced, because God puts them to, to silence, God responds to Job directly concerning his way his will, his purpose in Job's life. Now, he doesn't give him a full answer for why he's allowed this to happen. But he gives him some measure of answer that he is God. During this challenge, uh, he, Job says something that I think we all need to remember in times like these. Turn to Job 42, verses 1 through 6. I'll read the story to you, and then I'll highlight the pieces. Here's what he, here's what he says. Then Job replied to the Lord. So Job is speaking. Okay, quote, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Okay, so Job says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. I think we say this as Christians all the time. God can do all things. Yes, remember that all is more than you think it is. Okay, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Verse 3, you asked, so now it's God speaking, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Okay, <laughs> what is God just asked Job? Who is this idiot talking to me right now? Okay, because this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This seems to be us in many cases in our life. Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Job returns back, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job speaking back, you said, God, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. Now, there are many interpretations on who's speaking where, and that can be confusing. But look at verse 5. This, this is Job speaking to God. My ear had heard of you. But now my eyes have seen you. I thought I knew you, God. But now I know you. Therefore, what is Job's response? I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So we know this is Job talking, right? I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. See, Job, along with his friends, along with Job's wife... Everybody but this obscure character named Elihu, which we don't know if he says good things or bad things because God never responds to him. But Job's friends, Job and his wife, all have theories about what God is doing when they don't know. And they're wrong. And the response of Job, which is right now, is when he comes face to face with God, he repents in dust and ashes. He says, you know what, God? 
It's your way, and your will is good, and you are right. What is the action step here? To repent. Because, Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. That is a powerful reality. While Job and his friends are offering their best interpretation of where God is or what God is up to during turbulent times, they spoke without understanding, and God was displeased. Read chapter 42, verses 1 through 7. God was up to something, but that something was something too wonderful, full of wonder, for them to understand or to know. So what Job was called back to was what we've talked about already. Accept, admit, and abide. You see, church, in our current situation, instead of theorizing, again, about what this pandemic is all about, I want you to recapture some important action steps. Number one, I want you to learn what it means to lament. It's okay that you ask God why, but appeal to him based on a confidence in his character. Stop getting mad at God. He is at work. Somehow, we may not understand how, but he is at work. Number two, accept what we do know. You know what we know already. Admit that there are things that we don't know. Most of the reason for this, we don't know. And then last but not least, abide in God through it all. But then, here's what I'm really encouraging the church to do. Lament, accept, admit, abide, and then take the cues that we see from David and Joseph and Job. Trust God, rejoice in who he is, and sing to him. Praise him for all that he's done. Church, we're dealing with something that is far more than just, than just a made-up story here. This is something bigger than we understand. Maybe you don't know this. Maybe you haven't come face-to-face with the effects of coronavirus. Maybe you haven't had your job furloughed. Maybe you haven't lost a loved one. I got a phone call last night from a member of our church whose father's friend, who is a pediatrician, is at uh, B North on a ventilator, and it doesn't look good because he has COVID-19. We haven't been faced with this yet. It's not necessarily come home to roost in our lives. Maybe your job hasn't been affected. Maybe you're not asking why questions. Maybe you right now are on some extended vacation. But if it does hit you, I want you to be prepared. I want you to be ready. I don't want you to lose faith. I want you to be the person who understands what this is all about. I want you to lament. I want you to accept. I want you to admit. I want you to abide in God. I want you to sing and to rejoice and to trust God. I want you to do all of that. And when your neighbor is facing it or your coworker is facing it, make sure you deliver to them what the gospel would tell them. And that is this story. Something bigger than ourselves. We can trust a God who will bring us through this. Other people have no hope. They have nothing to look forward to. But we have everything to look forward to because God is good. Amen, church. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.